Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting next to Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How is it going it's with you? Going great. Hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, make sure you hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button on the podcast app. And if you want to support us, give us five stars. That goes a very long way. We're definitely very appreciative of you doing that. So Howard Marks came out with a new memo okay. uh, called Something of Value. And we're going to talk about it in today's podcast. All right. So have we ever talked about Howard Marks before in this podcast? I don't think so. Maybe other than mentioning his name here and there. All right. Who is that? Howard Marks is Oak Tree. Oak Tree uh, Capital Management. Which is largely distressed debt, and he's involved in doing the philosophy, uh, the overall investment philosophy and things more than individual selections there. If you look up 13 Fs and stuff like that, you're going to see a bunch of their common stock positions. I think that's kind of stupid to focus on and suggest that people not do that. The same is like with Klarman, where people look at them like, that's probably a small part of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And some of it is probably, I haven't looked into it, but I'm guessing that some of it of their stock portfolio is from... Um, uh, distressed companies and stuff. I know that they owned, I've seen that they had stock in a um, utility in Texas, for instance, and that utility under a different name and stuff had gone through like a bankruptcy proceeding or something similar to it. So I bet that, you know, they're similar to their distressed debt sometimes. So they're really distressed debt, um, mm-hmm. high yield yeah, type correct. things. And he's been in that field for, since the 70s. Long time. talks about in this memo. Yeah. Absolutely. So and he's like a founding right? member of the, of the um, team there. Absolutely. His memos are great. Yes, Buffett that's what he's them. famous for is the memos, which come out whenever he feels like it. I like that format. Let's give the notes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jeff is going to have his own uh, uh, version. We don't know what we're going to call it, but right. it's basically going to be a very public, uh, you know, letter, memo, right. whatever. We've talked about this before because- Whatever he feels we, like We've it. done a year of a fund, right? <laughs> Correct. And the question people have is like, so where can I read your quarterly uh, letters and your annual letters and your things like that? And what they'll be is more uh, a page on the website where there will be time to time public for everyone to read. Correct. Um, communications of a more general uh, nature, as opposed to anyone being able to read the things that most funds do where they go through all their positions and stuff. We're not going to do that. We, that was never planned that we would do that. Mm-hmm. So you're never going to be able to even if you want to become a partner or something it's not like we're going to give you these quarterly letters that show you here's what we own and this was up this much and this was down we don't do that kind of thing do you but think we, a lot of funds do it because it's really their source of marketing yes yeah yeah even the ones that are like don't share this they want it to be shared yeah i was gonna say how does that get leaked they just said it everywhere like please or and they to value yeah, you know, and, all these and different like outlets. other funds have a different um have a different marketing rule stuff so that's more important to them correct because of we have a different exemption Correct. Yeah. Correct. Most fun Anyways, so this memo came out. A lot of people were tweeting about it. Something of value. He's basically making the case, um, I guess, that you could purchase growth stocks and still do okay, as opposed to just value stocks. Is that what he's talking about? I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, is so it his capitulation memos are long. or they look at things from both sides, right? I thought it was a great memo. I really, I yeah. really did like so it. So basically, he talks about his discussions with his son. Correct who is also involved in investment stuff. But his son is of a more growth bent than he is. Howard Marks is basically of a Graham and Dodd type, um, or some would say contrarian type investor. Um, And he talks about Graham and Dodd in the sense of that bond investing is a negative art. 
that it's about um oh no that didn't work good uh <laughs> that it's about um because your upside is capped right if you buy a bond at 30 cents that's going to mature at a dollar then you're only going to make um that dollar uh, no matter what. So it's just a question of how long it takes to get there and stuff if it pays. So the question is whether is figuring out what bonds pay versus how much, uh, which ones will de- default and how much they'll lose. Um, and then you know what your upside is. But with uh, stock investments, you don't. The upside is theoretically unlimited. And, and although that it's obviously like it's not really going to be unlimited in most stocks over short periods of time. In some stocks, it really is very unlimited over very long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about that before, uh, that there are stocks that are 100 baggers and things like that. And so obviously the difference is huge. Um, you don't even have to be right that often. Like people say in, in stock picking business, if you're right 60% of the time. The truth is in the stock picking, if your compounders do well enough and you stick with them, you can be far, far worse than 50%. Like your, your batting average can be that most of your stocks do very badly mm-hmm. and you'll still make money because of the compound effects of if you have a couple in there that do 30% a year for over a decade, that will easily pay for your losses. Yeah. So there, this whole topic has been a very common topic lately, I feel like yeah. growth versus value, probably where we are in the market mm-hmm. and everything like that. But I just, I mean, to, to you, what's the definition of being a growth investor? See, that's the hard part, right? So there's two ways. The way I would look at it is there's two ways, I've always said, of looking at it. there. And he talks a little bit about this. Um, he doesn't put in these terms. But I would say the definition of value investing and growth investing t- is that basically people have said that they're opposites. So academics and stuff have defined them as opposite of each other, whether they call them glamour stocks or growth stocks, value stocks or cheap versus expensive or whatever. They've defined it as you have to separate them into two buckets or put them on a spectrum of price to book or whatever. And then there, I've always thought there's two ways of looking at defining this stuff. In a sense, you can look at, a, at it objectively, as academics do, which is to define what a value stock is by some measure of the object, the stock. Or you can look at it, at it subjectively by taking the subject, the investor, and saying a value stock is what a value investor buys. So is a value stock what a value investor buys, or is a value stock something that is inherent to the stock? Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sense, it's both. But it's sort of like, I, I think of it more as I've talked about like finding your own investing style and stuff. I think of it as more of a genre. So honestly, when we're talking about it, it's like saying, uh, and that gets into can you um, know it when you see it? And are there actual differences? I think there are. So is there a difference in genre between, um, you know, we all agree that there's a difference between nonfiction and horror in genres, right? But do we agree that there's much of a distinction between horror and fantasy and things like that? There may have been 80 years ago. There may not so much be today. And some things are closer to that. And some investors are very on the border of certain genres. And some have styles that are very firmly in one or the other, mm-hmm. right? So Warren Buffett is, would you say he's less of a value investor than uh, Kundal was? No. Okay, but in terms of how academics look at it, he was. Uh-huh. Because one of their favorite things, if you notice, is price to book, right? Sure. Well, Buffett's price to book often isn't low. This is a question for us. Are we value investors? It depends on how you say it. By price to earnings? By price to earnings, 90% of what we own is half of the median PE, probably. Okay. So that's pretty extreme value, Mm -hmm. right? We own almost nothing that is expensive by PE. Now do it by price to book. 
We own lots of, we we own plenty of things that are premium for their industry. I mean, it's like if you, for example, let's say you buy a company that's growing EPS, that's very predictable, 100 plus percent per year, but it's trading in the market at 20 to 30 times earnings. Is that a value stock? See, academics would look at it and say 20 to 30 times earnings, no. Right. But other people could look at it and say, if you're worried about the future, right? Finance right. is all about the future, the present value, the future cash flows. That could be a bargain. Right. And this is where it gets complicated because if you go too far with that, then you think anything's a value stock. Anything could be a value stock, right? Mm-hmm. And yet we know that value investors, and Buffett wouldn't even call himself a value investor, but value investors actually rarely pay very high multiples sure, yeah. of things, especially multiples of record earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an interesting question to ask, uh, for us, like I've said before, I'd be willing, so I would be willing to buy a stock that has no earnings. Um, if for some reason I felt strongly that it would have earnings that were, um, would pay us back in the future. It's just hard to think of situations where that would be true. There's some I've tried to analyze where that might be. So there, there's certain internet startup things where large amounts of the marketing costs are upfront. And then as long as the customer is retained, as long as I'm right about that fact, they'll generate a lot of the free cash flow in the out years. I tried to analyze Daily Journal, kind of gave up on it. But I tried to analyze Daily Journal because of a presentation someone had done on Daily Journal. Mm -hmm. I couldn't verify a lot of those facts. Mm -hmm. But the idea was you do a lot of upfront spending on getting the business in the first place. And then you make your money later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it does happen. We talked about Breeze Eastern before. Breeze Eastern has all their upfront spending on trying to get a project, uh, like to be the standard on some model from Boeing or something. And then if that goes into production and is a hit, so that there'll be thousands of those planes built over the years, then that's 40 years of just collecting profit. And it's all about five years of working on the project, right? Um, so that's an argument that can make sense. But then you have to kind of value how big that market is. Sure. And the problem that I see mostly with the arguments for the growth stuff, and there are some things I kind of disagree with in Marx's memo, or, or I, there's parts that I agree completely with, parts I agree some of the way, and some a little bit less. Okay, let's hear it. The, the one I agree with the least is that the economy has fundamentally changed, that the businesses are more asset light, that they'll generate higher returns, the things about scale, and particularly the idea that technological change is the highest now it's ever been. I don't believe that's true. When I really? started investing... I started investing in the late 1990s. Okay. I would say technological change is less today than in the 1990s. Okay, but wasn't it more of a concept back then when it's more of a reality today? Because these companies do continue to scale, grow, generate tons of cash I would flow. read the first, I mean, read the early annual reports of Amazon. How fast was it growing? Uh, and how many industries was it entering where no one had ever sold that product online before and now is being sold online? Okay. I mean, Amazon was going into an industry. Amazon was disrupting Barnes & Noble, which itself had probably just disrupted the bookstore industry within the last 10 years. Okay. You know, things like that. Um, and disrupting retailers and things like that. I also think that people underestimate how much in the past very strong companies have been disrupted because they don't remember that they were very strong. So, for instance, if you don't read books about the early department stores, you don't realize they were some of the best businesses around. So, you don't know how in, you know, 1908 or something, having the best department store in a city was a license to print money. You just remember it later and don't ever remember that those department stores those names of those people who are famous in each city and who have all, had all this money and stuff you just remember them as like you know um 
as these businesses that existed that, that were that were um you know Disrupted. that they were not like those that exist today that way um he talks about newspapers and stuff and how you could predict for a long time that the washington post would be successful can you predict the same thing about facebook and google and stuff like that maybe i don't see them as as fundamentally different as he does i think we've talked about that before but since the beginning i think the economics of facebook are awfully similar to the economics of a local tv station they look like it and their position is probably pretty similar that way so um i don't know about some of those things mm -hmm. and the other argument is if there are things that have that kind of scale possible then you would be in winner-take-all type businesses, which means that a larger group of those things which you would f predict future um, growth, high addressable markets and stuff, will fail more miserably than in past markets. Mm -hmm. So if even if that was true, if there's, um, say, cloud storage or something, if there's you're looking at three different companies that are all trying to serve the same enterprise customers to do that thing or whatever, the chances that some of them will end up broke and stuff would be higher if it really is winner take all for the first one in it because what you're saying is the market is like the market for newspapers daily newspapers in a in a city well the market for daily newspapers in a city eventually became one newspaper per city so that's not how they started mm -hmm. <laughs> if you go back to 1800 in some city like philadelphia or something if we go back to like the days of the revolution there's a lot of newspapers uh it's not even an oligopoly probably by the time we get to 200 years later you know you've eliminated everything but one all the others are worthless um so that's the other argument so like if you're saying whatever app you think is going to be successful mm -hmm. if there's a few of them vying for that same business then there becomes a bigger risk that some of them will be broke than there would be an oligopoly type situation so it becomes harder to define whether you should pay up for an addressable market of that size we do this sometimes where i say okay what's the addressable market for zoom or whatever but there's a key thing you have to do at the end which is what is the probability that they will reach it like reach the whole, it. the whole entire market? and that probability could be what if that probably is 30 percent Having a 30% probability of having a billion users is the same as having a 100% probability of 300 million, mm -hmm. you know? So you have to do that last step of that mm -hmm. uh, with the probabilities. Whereas that's not true for many value stocks. You know, when we look at some things, what's the probability someone will have as many customers or more in the future? Well, when you have a 95% retention rate and the market's growing a little bit, it's almost 100% chance you'll have at least the same number of customers. Mm -hmm. you know? But what is value to you then? I've always thought that value... Because to me, like, yeah. when people just talk about the value side of things, to me, there's no context to it. Because I gave that example of a company growing 100 plus percent EPS, very predictable, yeah. and trading at 20 times earnings. Is that cheap? 20, 30 times earnings. Is that cheap? It's very cheap if... But people if, look at... They almost put a box over their head and just say, well, I'm a value investor, so that's just... It's a hard no. Well, it's very cheap if... And the if is... Yeah. It's, well, that's my point, the context part. Right, but it's scary. Honestly, it's scary. And if you look historically, companies that grow 100% a year are in general much riskier than companies that grow 15 or 20. Once you exceed about a 20% growth rate or something like that, and this depends on inflation, that's getting frightening because it means that there's too much change in your industry. So it works if it's a one-way door. And that's the thing you have to figure out with these companies. So when they say, you know, now we talk a lot about if something could go viral, right? Mm -hmm. But the scary thing is, can a competitor do that? What you need is something that is virally adopted in the first place, that somehow spreads very fast, right? And then 
people don't want to switch after that. So everyone wants to switch very quickly to Facebook, mm-hmm. and then they don't want to adopt something that's like it to replace it. You would have had to figure that out in a sense, or you'd have to figure out that people will try Amazon, but then they'll stick with it. It's easy to overlook that if a fitness thing comes out, it's very likely everyone will adopt it this year, and then they'll stop. I mean, we talked to, like the good example is that it's Atkins, right? Mm-hmm. So in within like a year or something, probably 20 million Americans adopted Atkins, and within another year or so, probably about 20 million Americans quit Atkins. Nice. <laughs> so what if that happens with an online thing? Mm-hmm. And it will with some things, with some sure. apps and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it depends on those things that they change and those that they don't. That's why I do compare something like Facebook to something like a newspaper. Because it seemed to have similar um, things in terms of how it's used in terms of habits by the audience and also by advertisers. So there is a similarity with other media. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that can be overlooked because the big media, um, big like in certain cities and things, people or magazines or whatever it might be, that became very valuable media properties. They grew shockingly fast, similar to how the internet stuff grew now. And then all the innovation in the industry ended fast. So, And that can happen. I mentioned in our fund that we're investing in a tech company. Mm-hmm. Well, the truth is that tech company has had like no innovation in their industry in like 15 years. So, But before that 15 years, in the last 15 months probably before those 15 years, there was more change in the industry in 15 months than there would be over the next 15 years. Mm-hmm. And that happens in industry after industry. It'll happen in the things we consider tech today. That they'll grow, there'll be tremendous change now, and then they'll eventually there won't be much change. Mm-hmm. You know, and the value is finding those things where that will happen. If you find an industry where it just constantly changes, there's nothing of value there, and that's usually the biggest problem. If well, there's it's hard to value widespread too. adoption. It's hard to value, but it's not just hard to value. If you go back, they usually end badly. Um, it is much many more fortunes have been built by people growing relatively slowly than by having triple-digit growth rates. Triple-digit growth rates are associated with very bad outcomes because, I mean, a lot of times Phil Fisher did not buy things growing as fast as this. Peter Lynch never bought things growing as fast as this, and there's a reason. A few things is that unless they're like capitalized to the point of being free of need for capital, okay, um, you can't sustain growth rates more than about 30% or something uh, through self-funding, so you need debt. Right, so like Tesla and their history, Tesla can't self-fund historically. Mm-hmm. They haven't been able to generate enough um, earnings to fund themselves, and Tesla doesn't grow anywhere near those sorts of rates that you're talking about, and hasn't. Um, so, it a industry that can't self-fund is riskier, and then also anything where there's that much change with the customers so if it's the first thing they've ever bought, that's a big advantage. Sure, but you know that's like we go to the iPhone example iPhone was adopted quickly by people, but then they stopped changing, and that's when Buffett bought in. It's very important to get that stop changing part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I say that technological change, I think, was higher um, in the late 1990s than in the early 2020s because the people's behavioral changes were more rapid, but a lot of them didn't stick and become fortunes, mm-hmm. right? But I do think it was rapid, and I think it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that all sorts of people used um products like blackberries and palms and things that cease to exist people you know like there's a survivorship bias or whatever we want to call it where we remember the things that became adopted that way and don't remember all these other things that people's habits changed completely and then you know they went away what did you agree with 
I agreed with some parts that he had about, um, he talks about the efficiency of the market, that it's grown a lot since the early days of value. Mm-hmm. And then the early days of value, you could buy net nets and things like that. Um, I don't totally disagree with his argument about like the possibilities of bigger scale for companies and especially the asset light part of it. But I think that's kind of dangerous and that's the argument that most people have for those things. Um, the efficiency thing, which is like that you used to be able to go through the value line and Moody's and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, I've been investing for about 20 years or whatever. And in that time, I have found things that would um, disagree with like where he says these things are gone. In very small things, they're not always gone. And in some places, they're not gone at all. In Japan, they're not gone. You could apply Graham and Dodd value investing in the last 20 years in Japan, and it works. All you, you don't have to do anything else. All you have to do is buy low price to book and stuff like that, and it works. Because mm-hmm. um, Japanese investors generally aren't interested in doing the kind of um, Graham and Dodd approach that he talks about. But in America, they are. So people scoop those things up. Sure. Yeah. I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on, do you think using screens to find high quality businesses at you know an arbitrary uh, like low PE, for example, do you think that is sort of competed away by quants and all these other people with computing power that are doing that all day long? No. But he also says that that would, outside of panics and stuff, he thinks that that's the screen idea of just screening isn't going, isn't as effective today. And I don't know if I maybe disagree more with that. Um, I have found in general that a lot of the things that I buy that have success screened, you could have found them on a screen. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to understand why. Um, Is the trick to find them when they don't screen very cheap? It's a good question. I think it can be done. But what's odd is that a lot of things that I had the most success with screen cheap. In fact, the ones that I had really good success with. So the investments I had the most success with did screen cheap. They also qualitatively looked good, mm-hmm. right? I've had some success with things that kind of I didn't like qualitatively, but they screen cheap. And some that I like qualitatively, but they didn't screen screen cheap. It's kind of like uh, Mo, or, um, Monish Pabrai. He was doing a recent talk and he was talking about how he wants to find these you know compounders, but he's yeah. so to the value side of things where he doesn't want to pay up for it. And he was talking about Charlie who... You know, with Costco at 40 times earnings or 50 times earnings, he would never sell it. But Charlie would also admit that he would never buy it today at 40 to 50 times earnings. Yeah. So here's the thing. We've talked about some really big returning stocks. So I owned Activision, right? Uh, When it was basically a micro cap. It's screen cheap. On an EV to sales basis, it was uh, around one. Today is probably seven or more. I haven't checked lately, but that's kind of what video game publishers go for. Um, So... It did screen cheap. Uh, we, we talked about Village Supermarket, five times earnings or something, screen cheap. J&J Snack Foods, like 10 times earnings or something, screen cheap. Um, it was a, inside a panic. So he did mention that in panics, these things will happen. But when I bought FICO, which has had a good last 10 years as a stock, um, that's screen cheap. Very low, uh, like price to free cash flow, very low, close to 10 times. Um, so... To be honest, the the only kind of home runs that I've ever hit in stocks have been things I liked qualitatively, but honestly, they also were just on the things that value investors screen for cheap. 
But you like the business attached to it. For some reason, people didn't like the business at that time for reasons that I sometimes don't understand. Mm-hmm. So Village Supermarket, for instance, why was it so disliked then? I think all the money was going to tech stuff, so it was a bubble, right? And then there may have been a belief. We don't know how much of this there is. You, you can't quiz everyone who's selling the stock. There might have been a belief that online groceries would be a thing, and it's 20 years later, and there's still not a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, So that someone was predicting a technological change that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so you could say you got lucky. I got lucky because I was betting that online groceries wouldn't become a big thing. They didn't. And so that's really how I made money in the stock. Well, the best way to make money is non-consensus and right. Right. And so, but maybe betting that the past will continue. Hmm. I mean, most of the things that I've had, I can't think of much where I've had huge success where I wasn't betting on a continuation of past things. And for some reason, I guess you could say the market was betting the past things would stop happening. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that is sometimes. FICO and stuff was in the middle of like a crisis and there were reasons to think that credit stuff would change, right? Because that was the financial crisis. Same thing with Moody's and stuff. People thought it would really change. Um, but that is one part that's a little odd that I have found that where I've had success is um, things that uh, screen cheap. Now, the argument can be made, they don't screen, there's always stuff that's cheaper and we don't buy it. So... I was going to say, I wonder if maybe the the mental model, if you will, that you could take away from this is that price... Unless, of course, you're running a portfolio, like a net-net portfolio uh, and stuff like that. But price can't be the only margin of safety. You have to have a great business that's attached to it or a good enough business that's attached to it. It's interesting. I kind of take the opposite approach, I guess. Uh I think buying purely on price actually works really well. And buying purely on quality actually works really well. But you have to be so right about both of them. So for whatever reason, I'm not good enough at either one, I would say. So, <laughs> so, just somewhere in the so Howard Marks has been very good buying purely on price. His uh-huh. son, who he talks about in this, has been really good buying purely on quality or growth or however you want to put it, compounders. I've never found that I could buy compounders at 40 times and be right about it. But neither have I found that blindly buying things at four times earnings works. What's worked for me is buying things at you know 13 times earnings or less that I think are really good businesses. Mm-hmm. So buying at less than the market i mean maybe two-thirds or less than the market pe and buying something which i think is much higher quality than the market generally mm-hmm. um for me the middle thing has been what's worked so that's always an interesting question it's like so am i a value investor am i a growth investor for whatever reason i'd say it's in between that if you actually looked at it my approach has generally been in between moderate um prices and stronger quality that way. I wonder if maybe the issue is because of social media, technology, instant gratification, everything, that people's investment time frame or horizon has just declined. I don't think it's less than it was in the 20s. So you think it's the same as it was in the 20s? 20s. All the way up? 20s, 60s, late 90s, and today. Hmm. Okay. This part's interesting right here. Yeah. He's talking about in the... A conversation that Howard and Andrew had together. Um, Howard says Coca-Cola reached 46 times earnings at the height of the bubble in mid 1972, 2.4 times the P on the S&P 500. From there, it fell 65% over the next year and a half. Mm. So then Andrew goes through it 
Um, and really the part that I like was he said, Coke may have been overvalued in 1972 at its PE of 46 in particular, since it dealt in a physical product and required incremental capital to grow if it didn't have potential for exponential growth. But note that Coke holders did earn a compound return of 16% a year for 26 years even if they bought at the 1972 pre-crash high. Yeah, I mean, that's something that Ben Graham said. The ri- and I agree with that 100%. The risk in bubbles mm-hmm. is not buying to paying too high a price for high-quality companies, for, for the individual investor. Mm-hmm. The risk in a bubble is paying a high price for a business that is not good quality. And that's the scary thing about today. It was a scary thing about the 90s. Not only are people paying 90 times PEs, they're paying 90 times P's for things that are not Coke and Gillette and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And that you could bet with pretty much 100% certainty is going to be around for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Right. They're not paying 90 times P's for Buffett's inevitables. So sometimes they are, right? So some of them are. Um, when we talk about like FANG stocks or something, those are, you know, this for technology things for this time period. They're kind of the the part of the nifty 50 that you could predict would be inevitable like buffett has said but if you look at the nifty 50 there was other stuff mixed in there retailers for instance Mm -hmm. that turned out not to be inevitable they're like there's a lot of change in those industries so in the brand things if you look at the nifty 50 the, the most popular brands with a few exceptions um they still exist and are still some in some cases they're still some of the leaders in their industry if you look at some of the tech type stuff and some of the retail stuff, they, if you held them for 30 years, could have gone down over time. Like the actual business could have deteriorated a lot more um, than, the, than the overall market. And that will happen again. Some things that people like so much today actually will underperform the, will underperform the um, overall economy. And then other, some other things will do well. But just because something's priced at, at really high PE ratios doesn't mean it will even match the market. Uh, there's plenty of ones where it won't. Um, but the other thing that Marks talks about, which actually I puts me not in the value camp or whatever, is he likes to sell eventually after something has gone up. Yeah. Yeah. He said something that, and I wonder if, if it's a generational thing, the whole you don't go broke taking a profit. Maybe. Andrew and I talk about this a lot. My, uh, my father always says that to yeah, me too. And you I, you I don't go broke taking a profit. the dumbest quote ever. <laughs> but let's see. I don't know where it is. I'm there. not a big believer in taking profit. Uh, not I don't, whether it's taking profits. I well, it's kind of like Munger. He'll never sell Costco even at forty to fifty times earnings. Right. He may not. I don't buy care, it today. I don't care about the the realizing just because something has a big profit. I don't. I'm not more interested in realizing it or something yeah. because of that. Um, I might sell something because it got really expensive. I guess, but I certainly don't see it as like oh, I need to close out and get that profit from it. Um, mm-hmm. And that is a common thing, yes. I've certainly talked to brokers where they say, oh, good, we're taking a, we're closing this out and taking a profit. That must feel good. Not really. Right. I'm like, no, you know? it doesn't actually feel good. Let me see if I can find. Have this all messed up. I'd say oh, it right never so really feels good to sell a, a stock. So, he was, so, so Andrew said, Dad, I've told you I'm not a seller. Why would I sell? He's like, Howard said, well, you might sell some here because A, you're up so much. B, right. you want to put some of the gain in the books to make sure you don't give it all back and see at that valuation, it might be overvalued. And then he said, of course, no one ever went broke taking a profit. Okay, so I don't agree with the last part, obviously. C is the only one that I think is is worth thinking about at all. 
at this valuation, it might be overvalued. Well, that's that, that is an appropriate reason for thinking about it. I'm quoting Monish a lot, but it's like his quote when he said, you have to make sure the mistress is hotter than the wife. A lot of right. times the mistress is not hotter. Right. I don't think it's at all relevant that you have a huge profit in a stock. Uh, I don't think that matters. And like that you want to put it in the books and stuff like that. I don't agree with that part of it at all. Um, I, well, that's coming from his perspective, which he talked about the way that he looks at investing. It's very much kind of like quicker flips and stuff like that. It sounds like from the value camp. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't know if that's like a part of value investing necessarily or not. I don't think Buffett's ever felt that way. I don't think in his entire even career his, he's ever felt that way. No, I don't think even days? his early, I don't think Buffett would ever say, let's take a profit in this. I don't think that's a term that Buffett would understand. A good example of this, this is similar to me that um, when people talk about uh, the difference between income and capital is another good example that I see a lot, where people see a distinction when they're spending capital that they have saved versus income and things like that. That's the same sort of thing. I don't, I've never thought in that way, so I don't think, and I, that's what I mean here with Buffett. I don't think that Buffett would ever think that, ever, that being up double in a stock means that he gets a profit if he mm -hmm. sells it. Yeah, I, I think his mind resets every day to what's the value of the stock versus what I could sell it at. That's what mine does. I, that that's column that you have on realized gain, mm -hmm. I don't see that in my mind. I've never seen that in my mind. So if a, if a stock is up 10 times, 100 times I own it or down half, it doesn't change to me what it would feel like to sell that. I don't mind selling something at less than I bought it for, for instance. If I thought that something's deteriorated about it or I just saw a better opportunity or something, I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm locking in a loss. Mm -hmm. Nor would I think I'm locking in a gain. In all cases, I think I'm, I'm giving up my position. Um, I'm giving up my position in a stock. Is it at a value that I like or not? You know, like I've had stocks bought out for me because of an LBO. I don't see it as, oh, great, I'm getting 100% gain. I see it as, oh, they're getting for two-thirds of what this is worth, taking it private, and the other and investor And now i got to put that capital out. somewhere. Yeah. Interesting. What else did you take away from this letter? Uh, the other takeaway I had is that, you know, uh, people talk about the, like, you know, death of equities cover on, you know, with the business week or whatever it was. And um, it is interesting that we have a Howard Marks memo that is like maybe there's no such thing as value investing separate from growth. If that's an indicator um, of people trying to justify um, something that is uh, being in denial about pricing and stuff, then this is probably the sign of that. I read a lot of, um, you know, because it's the end of the year, I read a lot of people's end of year commentaries and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've read so much delusion in 20 years you know like how so justification of performance and pricing that is ephemeral you know they didn't write we're up a lot because things went crazy and they'll probably go back mm -hmm. they wrote well you know the economy has changed uh the kinds of things we own yes they're up a lot but really you know i mean even if your portfolio was up 40 percent, you're like but it's just as cheap as it was at the beginning of the year I don't know. I mean, I looked at the companies. They didn't become 40% more valuable during the year. So, you know, they're not. Um, there was a lot of that. And I haven't seen things like that since the 1990s. 
of um, people justifying what's likely to be temporary gains that they have or temporary conditions. I think people may overestimate um, how permanent the conditions are when we talk about things like growth and value and the performance of what you want to call growth things or whatever, the performance of very high multiple stuff. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to do that. And then it becomes very easy to do that in terms of measuring over long periods of time, which you have to be careful about. You have to be careful about that if you're measuring from a low point in valuations, like when people are measuring in the 90s, how did value do? Well, of course it did great because they were going back 20 years or whatever to measure from the lows of the 70s, which is, that was some incredible values. Um, today, if you're measuring at the end of a 10-year period or 20-year period or whatever, you're measuring something that likely will not be repeated. So the losses in the future and the poor performance in the future of some of these things will be so great that they'll never get back to those levels. So like, say, Elon Musk's fortune, will it ever get anywhere there no matter how long he lives and stuff? It's very possible it won't, mm -hmm. you know? And so you have that's what I mean about ephemeral stuff. There are certain stocks that have market caps that they will never see again. Um, and there are others where that's not true. But that's not a condition that exists a lot in markets. You rarely see things where you're like, I don't know how you grow into this. And then people trying to justify its existence. Because mm -hmm. if it goes on for a while, people will try to justify sure, it. Sure, yeah. You know, um, same as the 90s thing. Once it goes on for a few years, then you try to justify it. At first, people realize something's weird here. But later, people justify stuff. And I would say in the annual letters and things I read, I've not, um, you know, people are very open-minded how much of the success though is is like george soros's reflexivity and you and i have talked about this and amazon could be a good example of that they were awarded a stock that mm -hmm. kept on going up because of the growth rates and people kind of looked past standard gap profits and along the way they were able to build aws yes i don't think it, we've talked about this before i don't think amazon would exist if it wasn't for the dot-com bubble there's no way it could have funded that so as good as Bezos is and his ideas and stuff, without the dot-com bubble, it wouldn't exist. So that's an example of reflexivity. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason it exists. I also don't believe in the stuff that people say about, like, there's demand for it so naturally, you know, the customer, consumers driving. I don't believe that. They created Amazon and introduced consumers to it. It's pushed to consumers by entrepreneurs. Consumers don't know that they want the Model T. Mm -hmm. They need to have it made, and then they'll understand it. Consumers did not know they wanted an iPhone. If you talk to them about it, they probably wouldn't say that they wanted it until they saw it. Mm -hmm. And that's the same sort of thing with Amazon. I don't think they could have understood that. Um, but there's plenty of times this happened in history. You know, a lot of American railroads were built with European capital that was based on too much liquidity and stuff there and too much belief in a future in America that was excessive. Um, and that helped finance a lot of real stuff. The internet was financed a lot of real stuff. Um, there are real Teslas on the road that people can enjoy. And that is only because um, public markets are willing to value those things. Sure. Some of them are extreme. The ones that are weird and are extreme, we've talked about, but like the ride sharing. Ride sharing has been funded by losses from investors the whole way. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it'll ever be funded by anything else. And it's interesting because it's changed our culture. 
now people incorporate the idea of ride sharing in their life. Absolutely. And yet it's something which exists only because uh, venture capital and public markets exist. And I mean, the venture capital is only because they expect to take it to public markets. So it's really just because of that with public markets. Had stock valuations been what they were in the 70s and 80s, there would be no ride sharing. You know, so when you say the reflexivity thing, yes, ride sharing exists in our world purely because public market valuations were high, <laughs> which is can seem weird to people, but it's true, you know. Mm-hmm. So where's the the uh, sort of the middle ground then? Is it exactly, you know, the way that you think about you're not in one camp or the other? You're not good at doing one sh- extreme or the other. It's just kind of the middle ground of looking to buy what you think is a, a, a high quality business at a price that you think is fair. Yeah, I think you have to do what you understand. And so I think some people know how to do that. So some people could buy something that's pre-earnings maybe and uh, have success with it. If they, you know, the Phil Fisher type approach. Now, Phil Fisher never bought anything as speculative as we're talking about here. Uh, or he didn't, those weren't his biggest positions. Um so if you understand the organization, you understand the product, and you're good at predicting those things. I mean, there's people who have success with venture capital. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to predict those things. Now, there could be, we've talked a little bit before, there could be exceptions. I think if someone had success already in banking or insurance or something, and they went to a, say, I'm going to start up another one, then I could invest in that without any, like, uh, having current financials on mm-hmm. it. Um, how would you think about growth then? You'd be very focused on, A, probably the multiple you're paying today, but more importantly, the return on invested capital that the business generates. Well, so that's the biggest part, right? Because where you could get smoked in growth is multiple contraction. Well, yes, multiple contraction, but also a lot of these businesses will lose money. I mean, that's the thing that's the hardest to understand is that it attracts competition to a greater extent than other industries. So very high growth rates attract competition, Mm -hmm. which pushes down your returns, leads to overcapacity in the industry and problems like that. I mean, to me, I I haven't seen evidence that just because these things are asset light, that the barriers to exit are low. If your competitors are being fine, if, if someone is willing to finance a competitor with losses, they may not exit for a very long time, despite mm-hmm. the fact they're not tying up capital in the business. They may run losses. I've seen companies. There are still- We talk about that all the time, how scary it is. If you're a company that's in that more mature state that's trying to generate cash flow and you're competing with a bunch of other businesses that, quite frankly, don't care to yes. generate cash. I've seen some companies to, to this day Just who are public companies- share. They're very small public companies today, but their existence was because of the 1990s boom. That's how they started. They still have not been shut down. And at most, they made money for a few years in between. So most of their existence, they haven't made money. Several of them have no retained earnings. They've cumulative losses over 20 years, and they exist, and they plague their respective little market segment and hurt everyone else in there with overcapacity because of the 1990s. That was what created them. And they, no one destroyed them. Because once they existed, their executives still wanted to take salaries on it. No one said, let's wind it up and liquidate it. And it kept going and going. And occasionally when markets get hot again and stuff, they sort of get a higher valuation and stuff. But there's lots of other companies, of course, that turn into great fortunes for people. But you will, it will lead to too many um, competitors in some industries. 
and that is like the bigger risk. So just having very high multiples, you know, is a big deal. That's where you can get hurt a lot in growth stuff, but quality growth. There's other stuff that is not so high quality. Um, a lot of things that I see have losses still, and they talk about the break-even point. They don't talk about the possibility that things will top out for them before they reach that break-even point, and mm -hmm. what that means if the company limps along for 10 years after that losing money, but that happened to some dot-com-type companies. Um, yeah. And if, ever, and if there's four or five competitors in industry and all the investors in them have hopes of that total addressable market, they may not quit fast enough, you know? Whereas like a founder-led company, maybe they would transition into doing something else. Maybe they would say, okay, this didn't work. I've got to find something else to, I've got to find some way to actually make money. So like, let me take my capital and stuff and pivot into something else. That's what Buffett did with, with textiles with Berkshire. If you imagine if you had a business as bad as textiles with Berkshire, but you realize that every once in a while people value textiles really highly, then you stay in the market. You know, you'd say, oh, well, maybe I'll get a good valuation one day, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it, it it will create some problems like that in some industries where people don't go away. I always talk about barriers to exit. I'm not sure that some companies will exit as fast. One thing that was really helpful in the 2000 stuff is- So explain barriers to exit for people that- well, the barriers to entry it. into an industry are why companies wouldn't enter the industry. Very important. But very, very important is also how easy is it for companies to get out of the industry and how willing are they to. The best industries are, or, or industries that are pretty good are going to be industries where people are willing to call it quits and get out of your industry. The worst industries you could imagine are for some reason people are irrationally staying in the industry. So like old tech stuff that does okay today is purely because, like the electronics boom of the 60s and stuff, got oversaturated with stuff and defense stuff and things like that. So if you look, the companies that provide um, electronics into defense things and certain old tech and that stuff, actually some of them make money. Why do they make money? Because there used to be 20 competitors and now there are two. Their competitors were rational. They were willing to exit. The defense contractors and stuff got out of that business when they owned things in it. People you know, sold off those assets, whatever. If they hadn't done that, then you'd have a problem. And so things consolidate and rationalize over time because people are willing to exit the industry. You know, there's a very scary quote from the CEO of ARC where he said in his um, most recent earnings call, he said- ARC restaurants. ARC restaurants, yeah. He said, um, well, here's the thing. Uh, if you lose a restaurant in New York- I always say that it's not going to become, you know, a bank branch and stuff. It's, it's not going to become something else like that. It's going to become another restaurant in New York City. So, yes, this COVID thing that takes out so many restaurants, if we lose a third of the restaurants in New York City, that will mean that for those that are left, they will bounce back quicker for a time. But it's such a dream of people to own a restaurant in New York City and stuff that they will enter that industry. Mm -hmm. And they'll do it again, even if it doesn't make financial sense, and they'll depress our returns again. So we always have to be ready for the fact that there'll be overcapacity, basically, in restaurants. And there are other industries where that's not true. Not everyone is excited about getting into, you know, landfill business or something. So there are industries where, like, it, it can be more rational that way. And so some industries, you have your sexy industries and your industries that aren't very sexy. And the those that are very sexy will draw in too many competitors, and especially to public markets and things like that. And they can get, you know, um, I mean, you can think of lots of examples right now probably 
where what if it's a winner-take-all industry? What if ride-sharing is winner-take-all industry? Okay. If public markets aren't willing to only back the one winner, there'll be another one that hangs around and they'll both bleed off a lot of money from each other that they wouldn't have. Without the public markets there to do that, it would have consolidated down to winner-takes-all. And when you, so when you talk about the reflexivity mm -hmm. thing, it does affect things like that. It can leave in too many competitors who each hurt each other, and then you don't arrive at the profits that you thought you should have in the industry and would have had if capital was harder to get access to. The thing that was helpful in the 90s boom is that money got so tight, so hard to borrow and everything for companies. I mean, Amazon had junk bonds and stuff. Um, they, after it was already a really successful concept, um, it was very poorly credit, a poor credit rating. So once that happened the market really cut off funding in such a way to kill so many of them that that laid the ground for um, more entrepreneurship that would lead to good returns and things in future years. Without that culling of all those businesses in the early 2000s, you wouldn't have had the ground laid for such a big comeback. And in most countries around the world, I would say, something like that does not happen. If they have a boom, they don't so slaughter almost everything that isn't successful in a matter of a few years, like what was done in, after, in the early 2000s, as to lay the groundwork for another boom so quickly afterwards. Um, and that's really important in like getting rid of those companies and getting them to exit and all that kind of stuff. And so many changed their business models and so many liquidated. There were so many net nets. In the early 2000s, there were hundreds of net nets for a couple of years there, and most of them were dot-com. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for joining in with the both of us here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'll put the um, memo in the show notes and be on the lookout for Jeff's own version of whatever comes to his mind that he wants to write about. I did we say to him, I, I was we like, where are you going to talk a lot? Is it going to be like more macro? I mean, what are you going to talk <laughs> about? And he said, uh, you're going to figure it out. Because I don't, I don't picture you, you don't picture writing me. a lot about macro stuff. Okay. But we'll see. So I look forward to reading uh, what you are going to write and put out there on the internet. But I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. If you want to support us, the best way you could do that is by giving us five stars on the podcast app. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you in the next podcast.